Hi, I'm Steve Duke, and this is the Two Roads Podcast. Today, I want to start by recognizing that I'm recording on Gadigal land, and I want to acknowledge the traditional custodians of this land. I also want to pay my respects to the elders, past and present. On today's show, I caught up with Amy Smith, and I had a wonderful conversation with her about her own journey. And one of the things I learned from Amy very early in the conversation was the importance of realizing that we're so much more than just what we do for our work. So although we do talk about what Amy does for a living, we also talk about all of the other parts of her life that give her a sense of purpose and that she spends her time on. And so in terms of Amy's background, super interesting. She she spent 10 years working on the front lines as a social worker, working in some of the most demanding areas like suicide prevention. And she now runs her own business called Kindred. And Kindred is all about focusing on creating mentally healthier environments by changing some of the systems that we live and operate in. So a lot of that is around helping workplaces and organizations to create mentally healthier environments for their staff. So in this episode, you'll hear about why Amy started Kindred and the benefits and drawbacks of running her own business, the role of trauma in our lives and the importance of being trauma-informed when trying to create mentally healthier workplaces, how having a kid changed some of Amy's perspectives on life, specifically what she has done to be better at self-compassion and caring for herself. It was very interesting to hear about that, especially from her role as a a social worker where she's very focused on being empathetic and compassionate for others to hear about how she actually got better at doing that for herself. We also talk about what people can do as leaders in an organization or in a workplace to create mentally healthier spaces. And finally, the advice that Amy has for people who are in a job that maybe they don't love, but they can't leave it for whatever reason, they're kind of a little bit stuck. But what you can do without leaving that job to maybe make it a bit more enjoyable or to get a bit more satisfaction from it. As always, you can follow me on socials. On Instagram and LinkedIn, I post clips from the podcast so that you can review some of your favorite episodes from before or also maybe listen to clips from new episodes that you haven't listened to yet. And I also post extra content there all about helping people to find a job and a life that they find meaning and purpose in. So you can get me on Instagram at Two Roads Pod, And then on LinkedIn, you can just get me on my personal profile, which is Steve Duke. But apart from that, Shout out to my man. let's get into the episode with Amy Smith. Shout out to all the motherfuckers that don't give a fuck about us. Now we're here, all right? For people who are listening, how do you describe what you do? Uh, That question, I feel like as soon as we meet someone, we ask, oh, what do you do? Yeah, that's so true. And I try and not ask that question when I meet people because there's so much more to being human than what we do. For a job. 100%. So what do you ask instead? <laughs> uh, what they enjoy. Yeah, right. What their interests are. Uh, it depends on the context. So I'm one of those annoying people. If you sit next to me on the plane, you're probably going to have a chat with me. <laughs> and it might be just a connection like I might see they might be reading a book. and be like, oh, what book are you reading? Or just try and connect with them with whatever's happening in that moment. And often what will come up is what someone does um, for a job. And, but I try, and I think particularly 
when I be- I'm a mum, I've got a, a two and or almost three year old. That question when you're when you become a mum and you don't do much in the day to day and it can feel really mundane and a lot of mums can have like an identity crisis essentially because particularly if you're um, career orientated or things like that, that can all be for a season feel like it's taken away and I really, particularly in the early days of becoming a mum, rather than it changing my identity, I saw motherhood as adding to who I was and it was adding another layer to Amy. Um, but I'd never wanted my job to be my identity or what I do, um, just like I don't want being a mum to be all of my identity either. Like there's so many different layers to Amy. Yeah. So how, how, do you, how do you think about that sense of identity then? Is it that it's just made up of all of these different parts or do you think it of like kind of your identity as something separate entirely that has nothing to do with yeah. what you do for work yeah. or I think for me identity is more around who I am and how I show up in the world um and I'm a spiritual person and I have a faith and so very much that is like a core part of my identity but even that I would say in the last few years I've done a lot of unlearning and deconstructing around what that looks like. Um, but I think one of the benefits of that and having that for, you know, over a decade now is that I've turned away from my identity coming from what I do for a job um, and it's given me more of a like who who I am as a whole human, um, my values um, what's important to me, how I want to show up, how I want to connect with others, that stuff is what matters to me more than what I do in the day, like for a job. Um, and that's what I try and connect with other people as well, that I see the value of them as a human because they're a human, not because of what they do. Because automatically when we ask the question, or oh, what do you do, whatever the answer is, we're already judging them. <laughs> on whether they're smart, whether they're, you know, like what they, how um, successful they are. Um, And a lot of that is implicit bias. Like we don't do it consciously. It's just because of how we're, the society that we're in. It's a great point. Like I've, I notice sometimes that usually the best conversations that you have with a stranger are the ones where like you've been talking to them for like 20 or 30 minutes and you're like, I have no idea. Who you are, like where you come from, like what you do, but we've been talking about like some really interesting things. (laughs) Um, And then you just leave and you're like, oh, I don't know who that person was. (laughs) But but maybe that's the thing, right? So maybe you actually know a lot more about the person. Well, you get to connect with them. And I actually had that recently on a flight. I'd had a really long day doing a workshop with a team and I'd had like not a lot of sleep the night before. I was exhausted and... I was like, no, I'm not going to talk on the plane tonight. I just need to put my headphones on. And then the lady next to me, she actually, um, I think she spilled her drink or something. Anyway, I ended up helping her and then we we got chatting and we had the most beautiful conversation. Um, 
we, we got on the topic of like mental health and she had a young son as well. So we're talking about motherhood and things. And then it came up that she'd actually lost her dad, her stepdad to suicide. And I used to work in suicide prevention before I started Kindred. And we just, it, yeah, it was one of those moments where we connected, we we're both mums, kids the same age, navigating work, life, identity of that, and then had that connection around mental health and suicide prevention. And it ended up being this beautiful conversation. And she afterwards was like, thank you so much. Like I, And she actually said, I usually don't talk to people on the plane. Like, oh, I usually do. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I'm so glad I did. And I just love that those opportunities. And I think if I had started the conversation with like, oh, what do you do for work? It probably, and it did come up, but she doesn't work in that. She works in, I can't remember, like sales or I don't know, something like, which doesn't, it's not who she is. Like there's so much more to who she is that I got to see a little bit of insight into because of the way we started that conversation. Yeah, because I think once you, the problem with starting a conversation as well with like what do you do is that it can often very much just go down this path yeah. of talking about work and and some people have interesting jobs though like yeah, it's for sure like yeah. it's not it's like it's it's not an uninteresting topic by default but it's just that I know if somebody asks me about what I do it's like I've I've answered that a lot of times so I actually don't think about it I just kind of have like a rote answer that yeah. I talk about and they're like oh that's interesting and I've probably been asked the same question, the same follow-up question as well. Yeah. And so it's just like, this is just kind of the conversation I've had before, yeah. you know. But um, I'm interested in that journey that you're talking about in terms of like, you know, defining your identity not by the work that you do. Yeah. Or we can talk about what I do if you want. No, so I, I want, no, but, but I'm, uh, and we will at some point, but I'm interested to know like um, what, like, did something kind of kick off that process for you where you were like, actually, you know, I want to discover a bit more about my own identity or, you know, my values? Like, like was there something that kind of start? You're talking about it kind of being a process of unlearning over a number of years. Yeah. You know, was there something that kicked that off or, or not I think really? lots of pinnacle moments. And, but it's only really been the last three, four years that I've realised that those moments, the impact they did have on how I, like, view the world and my approach to life. And I, my mum passed away when I was a teenager um, and she was sick before that. And at the time of, like, that is very significant, but um, I didn't realise how much it impacted me because... Amy was always okay. I never needed anything. I just kept going and I had a, I've got a younger brother who's five years younger, um, so I really kind of took on that mother role for him. And so I didn't realise how much that changed. When you face death at a time when most of your peers are, like, worried about boys and parties and things like that, um, I actually became really judgmental because people were worrying about that stuff and I was like, I don't really care, my mum just died. Like, that stuff doesn't matter. And it also meant that I got to 
see like what does really matter in life. Like my mum was 40 when she passed away and the closer I get to that age, the more like when you're a teenager, that seems so old. But now I'm like 34 this year. I'm like, oh, 40 is not that old. <laughs> um, the things that I was really lucky and the things that she demonstrated to me of what matters in life and that like spending time with family and doing things you love and taking risks and going out and just giving things a go. Like I love that she taught me that and that I get to carry that now as a young-ish woman. Um, But as a mum now, like I get to model that to my son as well. So I think, yes, obviously that's like a significant thing to go through, but I didn't realise how much it really changed. I don't know if I would have that outlook or if I would have had that outlook at such a young age because I think a lot of like I'm having conversations now with friends and particularly friends now like we're in our mid-30s and some of them have lost their parents recently um, and they're having those kind of like shifts in um, thinking um, around life and death and things that matter and things. So I got that when I was 15. That's so young. (laughs) That's so young. Um, I still definitely had the teenage crap. You know, my brain was still not fully developed, Um, but it definitely, yeah, made me start to think about life so differently and recognise that I'm not invincible and that, we don't know when we're going to go, so I want to live intentionally. Yeah. Um, so I feel quite obvi- like lucky in that sense that I had that um, and I've been able to carry that since then. Yeah, that's um, – I think it's sometimes <laughs> – it's really unfortunate that it often requires something like so significant and yeah. so sad for us to like learn these lessons. Yeah. Um, actually, just on the episode that I released last week, um, maybe it was a week before, I can't remember, but there is a book which is like the top regrets of the dying. I don't know if you've oh, heard it. But, yeah. you know, and it's basically what I was trying to get to is like, hey, maybe we should learn some of these lessons before either we die or somebody really close to us has to die, right? If we can pick up these things, because it's so often you hear these people get to, you know, who are kind of coming towards the end of their lives and they're like, oh, I wish I didn't waste so much time doing this or chasing that. Or actually one of the interesting ones was that a big one was um, people wish that they'd been a lot easier on themselves. Mm. And they said, you know, they realized they'd spent their whole lives being so critical and harsh on themselves. I was like, that's so interesting that this is something. Yeah, right. So it's like, um, but, you know, still difficult, even if you know this like conceptually, yeah. it's still difficult to bring that into your own life. I like, teach that in one of my workshops, but yeah. I still try it. Self-compassion? Yeah, I do. A, I've got a workshop on trauma-informed self-care and one of the principles around that is self-compassion. And it's I did it recently with some mental health workers, the workshop, and that exercise that we do for that was so powerful because uh, – People who work in mental health, people who work in these industries are so good at showing empathy and compassion to others. It's what they do for a living. Um, And, like, I put my hand up there. Like, that was me as well. But being able to, like, shift that 180 and show it to yourself is so hard. Um, That whole thing around we're our own worst critic. And so 
I love when we do like the exercise I do around self-compassion, seeing the shift and people like giving the feedback of, wow, like I now feel like I'm equipped to know how to learn to, because it's a skill and it's a, it's a mindset shift and it's being intentional with being kind to yourself um, and what that looks like and knowing what that looks like for me might be different to you. So I'm very, I try not to be, oh, you just need to do A, B, C and then you can be kind to yourself. No, it's actually about exploring what does being kind to yourself look like for you um, and then trying to practice that. That's interesting. And I, like you obviously run a whole workshop on that, so I'm not <laughs> expecting that we can get like the insights of it. But if there's somebody, I'm, I'm really interested because yeah. it's something that I like. I try and do a lot for my for myself. Right? This is yeah. something that I would have recognized myself that I can be very critical of myself, and so I try yeah. to practice it. But of course, like it's sometimes quite hard to do. Yeah. But, like, is there anything that you know people can take away? Like. Like, are there any, I'm not saying quick wins, right? But like, yeah, I'm like, it's, it's quite hard to, well, not hard, but it's a journey. I think it's more of a process, that thing of like starting to shift your thinking. Um, but one of the exercises that pink can be useful, and this is a simple thing, say something's happened and you're dwelling on it and you're going down that spiral of negative thinking about yourself and beating yourself up, um, pausing for a moment and asking yourself the question, if a friend was coming to me with that exact same thing, how would I feel towards them? What would I say? How would I respond? Uh, that's probably, I guess, like the first step in starting to show yourself compassion is like, well, how would you respond to someone yeah, I really like that one. Yeah. That's actually one of the ones that I use yeah. myself. So yeah. I used to, because I used to have these little things that I would, um, I used to write them down like every morning, just like a couple of like little reminders to myself. Yeah. And one of them was uh, be your own best friend. Yeah. And the reason I did that was because that's what clicked with me yeah. in terms of like, like be kind to yourself actually never really clicked with me because it was too. Airy fairy. Uh, yeah. Or, <laughs> but like, for, there was something about it where I couldn't turn it into like reality, like what I needed to. Whereas like this idea of like be your own best friend, which does exactly what you talk about there, which is like if your best friend came to you with yeah. this situation, like what would you say to them? Yeah. Or like would you tell them what you are saying to yourself right now? It's like no way <laughs> no. would you say those things. So it's like a really, yeah, for that. me, it was like a really easy way to like recognize how you're thinking and like how you're talking to yourself and to be able to shift it. But I, I think that's a good point about, I think this is probably the way with a lot of these concepts is like the prescription of like do A, B and C. Yeah. Like rarely works. Yeah. It's much more about people finding their own thing because something different will click for yeah. everybody else. This one clicked for me. It'll be something else will click for somebody yeah. else. Yeah. Um, I think that's very interesting. So th this is one of the workshops that you you yeah. run as part of your business so I never wanted to do workshops but it, it just came I, it was with a project and they said oh can we do a workshop and so but I'm actually yeah I can see the benefit of it the problem with workshops I find in the so I work in workplace mental health well-being is you can have an amazing workshop and people can be really inspired and like this is awesome I feel so great but then they go back to their workplace and nothing's changed, everything's the same, and they don't have capacity to implement the things that they've learnt in the workshop. So 
I I have workshops, but they're like part of working with an organisation to implement and integrate better like mental health work like initiatives in the workplace. Gotcha. And yeah. so is that so the business is Kindred, right? Yeah. And so is kind of the overall goal of Kindred to help businesses or organisations create mentally healthy workplaces or like how do you kind of define it? Yeah, I would say Kindred is about two things. First, it started because I worked in the not-for-profit mental health suicide prevention space um, for almost a decade and the thing that burns people out isn't the clients, it isn't the people we work with, it's the systems that we have to work in. It's the lack of support in organisations or it's like bigger like government structures and systems that are oppressing the people that we're trying to support that we have no control over. And so my goal with Kindred was, well, I want to create, help create better systems. I want to help create better organisations that support staff. Um, and I use trauma-informed, a trauma-informed lens because the research shows that the more trauma-informed we have trauma-informed policies and systems and people, the better it is for everyone. So I use that lens so that people who are on the ground providing support to people are better equipped and resourced to be able to have capacity to do that. That's fantastic. And how do you – what is trauma-informed? Like how do you <laughs> describe question. that? <laughs> there isn't a universal definition I would say trauma-informed is around recognising that everyone has a different experience to different things. Let's define trauma first. So trauma is a human response to an experience or an event that's impacted on someone's nervous system life in a negative way and the repercussions of that. So trauma isn't the actual event, it's not what happened to you, but it's what happened, something's happened and how you respond. And I think that's really important because, so that leads to that trauma-informed space because what happened to me, what happened, say we are in the same situation or experience or event, crisis, how I respond is going to be different to you. And it's about recognising that. And so in a workplace, I don't. I really stay away from, I don't provide safe spaces for people because I can't assume that what safe looks like for me is the same as what safe look like, looks like for you. And that's where, that's the beginning of a trauma-informed trauma process is being aware of that, being aware of differences, being aware that people have different behaviours, different stress, trauma responses to different situations. Change management at the moment is like that's really prevalent because we've just gone through a huge collective trauma as a like the whole world through pandemic plus and in Australia we've got drought, bushfires, um, like cost of living, re- recession, things like that. And then your social issues like racism, sexism, ableism, like there's so much that's happening in the world right now, that's we're in a heightened state almost every day. And then if you go to your workplace and they're doing a huge restructure or big change, 
that adds another layer. So the way we do change in organisations needs to be trauma-informed. And so that's around recognising, well, what capacity do these people have to go through another change when we've just had uncertainty for the last three, four years? Yeah, right. And what do they need to support them through that? Yeah, wow. And and when you... I guess people can experience trauma at all stages of yeah. their lives, right? Yeah. So you talk about kind of recent ones there that a lot of us would have gone through yeah, at you know, almost like, like a, a collective level, yeah. but then there's obviously individual ones and, yeah. you know, there's things like I'm sure there's a lot of people would have experienced things as a, as a child, right, yeah. the childhood trauma. How, like, do you, do you think about those differently or does it all kind of fall under the same... Um, idea of like, they are all traumas and so like they all just require their own they, they all require us to to recognize that they're all different yeah I think it you've got to be really careful so often people when they think they hear trauma informed they they probably go straight to that therapeutic thing of like you're going to unpack your colleague or your staff member's childhood trauma so um so, so they feel supported it's not what it's about um, I definitely think that that going to therapy and unpacking that for yourself is something that is really beneficial for all of us to do. But as far as organisations go, it's recognising, I think the stats, it's between 75 to 90% of adults have experienced some trauma in their life. So you've got a significant part of the population that would fit into this category. Yeah. So why not create environments that are aware of that and are, and are responsive to that? Um, so there's six principles of trauma-informed care if you're like a healthcare worker or a social worker or something. So it's safety, trustworthy and transparency, peer support, collaboration, mutuality. Uh, what's the other one? Gone. They need to simplify them. Huh? <laughs> There's too many of them. I know. <laughs> oh, empowerment, voice choice is the other one. And then culture, historical and gender issues. So they're all big topics, big principles. So what, safety, collaboration, trustworthy, peer support, empowerment and culture, historical or gender considerations. And so... That's the principles of trauma-informed care. Yep. And what I do through Kindred is how do we bring that into how we create organisations, how we create policies, frameworks, how do we support our staff through those six principles so that they're equipped to then provide that to clients or provide that to whoever the those those six principles, as strong as they are, when I'm listening, I, I have no idea. I'm like, how do I translate them into something <laughs> tangible? Because, you know, yeah. and this is often I think that when you hear like six principles or pillars, I'm like, yeah. they sound great. But like in reality, yeah. what does uh, an organization that aligns with those six principles, what do they do? Or what's it like? Maybe what's it like for somebody who works there? Yeah. If they walk into work on a Tuesday morning, yeah. like what does that look like or feel like to them if an organisation is kind of doing the the right things? So I think the 
The first one I would start with is around safety. And so that, and the legislation's just changed around psychosocial safety. So it's very much top of mind for a lot of companies where they're like, oh, what, what the heck does that mean? What do I do? How do we do that? Because physical safety is pretty straightforward. Like don't have wires hanging out and all that kind of stuff. But um, psychological safety, like we were talking about before, that is different and particularly from a trauma-informed perspective. You don't know what triggers people. You don't know what if they go into a heightened state of arousal. Um, So there's a concept called um, the window of tolerance. And so we all have a window of tolerance and that's where we're at our optimum when we're in that window of tolerance. That's where we can thrive, we can work good, we can have conversations. Um, We're using our whole brain essentially. When we go into and the the basic thing is like that fight-flight response, Um, but there's actually fight-flight-freeze-fawn-flop. Oh, wow. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) So there's lots of different things of what that looks like. And when we're in those responses, that's outside of our window of tolerance. And once we step into that, we can't access part the reason part of our brain and our ability to function and to have um, rational conversations and be productive at work and things is really limited. So as a employer, you want to create an environment where your staff are in their window of tolerance as much as possible. And so I guess... That's where a lot of it is around asking the question, not asking, oh, what's your trauma response, but asking the question, what does safety look like for you in the workplace? What can we, and emotional safety is another one as well, like how as a leader, how can I create space for you so that you feel you can be honest with me about things? And I think... Sometimes what can happen is leaders can be like, oh, is there anything you need from me? Or sometimes I don't even ask that question. But if there isn't that emotional safety, you're not going to get an honest response. So as a leader, it might be actually from when someone first starts, like their first day at work, how are you being intentional with building that approachable rapport and that safety um, with your workers? And it's it's a process. It's a relationship. Hundred percent. It's such a good point because there, there's only ever been. Well, I've had some good managers and bosses over the years, but I think there was one in particular that stood out to me because in one of the, my very first like team meetings with him, with him, yeah. you know, we're kind of people are going, oh, what's going on in your lives, whatever. We're just going around the circle, and he was just like, oh yeah, you know, actually like just going back to therapy, like a couple of things I wanted to work through, yeah. and then immediately I was like, wow. He's just opened the door yeah. for all of us to feel like it's okay yeah. to say it either in the group or say it directly to him, yeah. you know, that we're struggling with something or that we need help or whatever else. And, like, yeah. he wasn't – he wasn't. that's so much more powerful than him sitting there and being like, by the way, you know you can, like, come to Go me to if therapy. you need help. <laughs> yeah, or, you know, or you, can, you know, it's so much more powerful that he just let it – he put himself out there. He was the vulnerable one first. Yeah. And immediately that was just, like – permission granted to, yeah. you know, to the people who are there. And so, wow, if he's going to, if yeah. he, if he's okay with it, then you, you're showing me that this is like a space that's safe for me. But how do you, like, the interesting thing that I'm coming back to here is that everybody obviously has a very different 
window of safety, yeah. right? Or I imagine on other, in terms of like their trauma response, it's all going to be very different. That seems hard, right? If because if you're a boss and like say I'm managing like five or six people, or and, like a hundred, or a hundred, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. And it's like everybody has got like completely different backgrounds um, and responses and windows yeah. of safety. It's like, what can I do? Like, how do I? Well, that's that's why that? I you can't you, you as an individual. No, no. Well, that's where I think it's unfair to put the like that on an individual. Um, which is why I'm really big on like having systems and supports and like frameworks and things across organisations to so that leaders ha- have like that as um, they're not on their own because I think what happens at the moment, you ha- you might have a really great manager or a really great boss or team leader, um, but that's just on them to be that way. Most people don't get promoted because of their people skills. They get promoted because they're good at the technical side of their job and they're just expected to be able to lead people well. And so organisations need to, and I think they are, start to, rather than it be soft skills, I heard a, I read an article the other day, it's real skills, <laughs> need to be equipping leaders with real skills to lead people well and so that they're supported by the structures within the organisation so it's not just up to that one manager to be aware of that stuff with their team of 100 or however many staff they have. Yeah. And when you talk about, like, structures, does that mean, in practical speak, like, kind of policies for how the company works or is it more about, um, you know, systems or different providers that people can interact with, you know, outside of their manager or, like, what does that actually <laughs> look like, you know? I think it's all of it because I think you can have a policy or a framework but it can just be a nice piece of paper that no one ever reads. And I, I, that's why I think with this stuff you need leadership buy-in and it, there's a term called corporate conscience. So that's where that always trumps policy, corporate conscience. So that's what the executives, what the leaders of the organisation, what culture they're setting, the tone that they're setting, that's going to trump any glossy values fire. Uh, that you have so you need but you still need those policies you still need those values but they need to be leadership need to be the ones that are like driving it and actually living it living those values and showing that no this is actually more than just a glossy fire Um, these values uh, inform the decisions we make every day um, as leaders and because the flow-on effect of that means you're going to have a mentally more mentally healthy workplace. And so if you have, say, the best leaders who, who do this, yeah. right, what do they look like? Are they kind of leading by example or, you know, what are they doing differently to, say, the leaders who are, who are maybe not so good at this? Listening to staff, <laughs> I think, and... Seems simple. But <laughs> <laughs> yes, Uh Listening to staff and, like you mentioned before, uh, leading with vulnerability. And Brene Brown has a book, Dare to Lead, that's 
so powerful and every leader should read it. And she talks about the when we lead with vulnerability and we show show up courageously in our vulnerability, the impact that has on the environment and the teams that we lead and and the the culture of a workplace is it completely can completely transform a workplace. So I think they kind of leaders, good leaders, show up in that way. And But I think it's also about on that individual level, you've got to do the work yourself to show up that way. You've got to understand your behaviours. And the trauma-informed thing is rather than looking at what someone's doing, it's looking at why and doing that for ourselves. Like why do I get really angry and frustrated when Sue... Keeps writing sentences in this way, or yeah. <laughs> doesn't wash up her dishes in the office, or something like. We all have different triggers and different responses and things, and our default is to blame the other person and to project. And a good leader actually takes responsibility for our own behaviours and our own responses, and looks at well, why is that. And it might be, going back to the whole childhood thing, when you were a kid growing up, if you did that, you got yelled at or, you know, your parents did whatever. And so it's that trauma response for you. Um, That's not Sue's fault, Um, but it's your responsibility to kind of understand why you behave the way you do and why we um, show up the way we do. So I think that's probably one of the important aspects of being a trauma-informed leader is about doing the work for yourself. Yeah, yeah, I can see that because it's probably going to be, it's going to be much more difficult to be able to be authentic or to understand like why you're, or to change your behaviours if you don't understand like why you're doing them in the first place. And when you're talking about that Brene Brown book, um, it's really interesting because I think when we all think about, say, bosses or leaders that we would have worked with in the past, the ones we probably admire the most were the ones who actually behaved like this and acted like that and where they, yeah. like, showed vulnerability. And any time I've seen it, whether it's actually in an organization or a sports team, it's, like, the, the person who shows vulnerability, like, straight away, like, you're, ver- you're very drawn to them and you're yeah. like, wow, I would do a lot more for this person than I would have, you know, a week ago before yeah. they kind of put themselves out there for it. But then oftentimes we don't translate that into our own behavior because we kind of, you know, it's much more safe for us to to not do that thing. And we often think as well, right, which is that being vulnerable is a sign of weakness and that actually, you know, we should be bulletproof. And if we want to progress, we need to be seen as strong and strong means not showing vulnerability, vulnerability. right? Which is like completely the opposite. But it's it's interesting for me that there's that disconnect between how we observe other leaders and what we respect in them and then often what we think we should do to be a leader ourselves and like there's something mismatched there that we don't translate those two things together. Yeah, that's so true. Um, I'm interested in, so that, you know, the people who listen to this podcast are interested in people who've had like different like paths and do different things for a job, right? So mm-hmm. I think the topic of what you work on is super interesting. Mm-hmm. I'm interested to know like how do you enjoy what you do? Uh, I enjoy, I do. I would say, so I 
started my business a year and a half ago, that's been really hard, the business side of things, because I'm a social worker. (laughs) I never intended to start a business and it's been a real, I've never faced so much imposter syndrome in my entire career um, than I have in the last 18 months. Really? Yeah. And I think starting a business, from my experience anyway, um, it really shines a light on those insecurities or on those things around like self-doubt more so than when I work somewhere because I guess there's clearer boundaries. You've got like your position, your description, you work in a team, like there's other, it's not just you. Whereas starting Kindred uh, and I have people who support me, um, but really it's me. And it's just me by myself. <laughs> and that's really that's been really challenging. So I feel so honored to do like and it to be on this journey. And I've been reflecting lately like what I have been able to achieve in the last 18 months and the opportunities I've had. And I'm really excited to be in this space, but it's really hard. <laughs> I don't know if that answers your question, I mean, but yeah. It, I mean, because maybe, maybe there's another question then, right, which is because sometimes things can be hard, mm. but there's still there's still things that we want to do, right, because yeah. we find meaning in them or we find purpose in them. And there's a lot of things that are very, very uh, – that are not hard or that are very, like, enjoyable, like, in the moment, but actually they're, we don't necessarily get, like, much meaning – or purpose yeah. from them. So in terms of what you do, like do, is it something you want to continue doing? Like is it something that you feel is like aligned with what you want to get out of life or do you think that maybe some part in the future that you'd want to still go do something else because, it, you know, maybe running your own business is not – Aligned with like your depends on the day. Some days yeah. I'm like, oh, I'm just gonna go get a job. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that comes something that I like that helps me in those times because I definitely have had moments of no, nah, this is too hard. Um, comes back to that purpose and my why, and that is very strong for me with why I started Kindred and and wanting to see shift those systems and shift the things that when I was working as a caseworker with people seeking asylum, seeing the direct impact of really bad policies and really bad systems that are destroying people's lives. And so I believe that's what I, like with Kindred, that's what I want to try and shift some of those systems and that's really hard to do when you work in the system. I know, like, there's arguments that people say you have to work in it to change it, but I, I'm going to try and do it this way, um, yeah. and equip and um, re- resource people working in those systems to then start to see shifting and changing. So, I think whilst that my why behind that is really strong, I do want to keep going. And on the flip side, I. One of the reasons I started Kindred is because I wanted to be at home, present with my son, 
And having my own business gives me that flexibility. Whereas when I was working before, there's like when you're working somewhere, sometimes it's less like you don't get that flexibility as much. So that's also when it comes to like prioritizing different things in life. Yeah. I, I think th- yeah. I think that's same um, that's a really good point. I think it's super important because sometimes we can just like pick a, a job or a career path without thinking about like how it's gonna impact like the other parts of our lives at yeah. like different stages yeah. of our lives. Yeah. Um and it's like if you kind of have the whole set of things that are important to you, like out in front of you yeah. on the table, you can say, well, actually, do you know what? What's most important to me is actually being able to be flexible and be at home with my son, right? Yeah. So it's like, that's priority. Now, how do I fit what job is, and work around it? Like? You know, around it. And like, how do I balance those things yeah. instead of like picking a job and then going, oh, shoot. How Turns out I've no time life. left yeah. for like all of those things that are actually way more important to me than <laughs> than this silly old job I have. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think that's cool. Um, I have a coat of us, so I've had the same external supervisor my whole like since I finished graduated uni. Oh wow! And he actually said to me like one of our sessions we did early on for Kindred when he asked me, he's like, "Why do you want to do this?" And that was one of the things I said. He's like, "I want." flexibility and realistically as a social worker or working I was working in community development you don't get paid very well so for me to keep working and be employed I would have had to have worked full-time like to live and I'm not there yet but like in this space I don't have to work as much but I can still earn enough to like support my family and can and be present with my son. Um, and so, yeah, there was something that was I was at a crossroads with Kindred and he said, well, once it starts to it, take you away from what your priority was, which was being home and being present with Ezra, um, that's when you have to start looking, okay, well, is this actually the good a good fit for me now? So... That going back, and it comes back again to values and priorities. Like when we're making decisions in life, being really clear on what are my priorities, what are my values, and using that as your lens when you're at a crossroads. Because then, whatever decision you come to, you know it's come from that place. Um, so you can stand strong in that and like move towards that path. Yeah, and um so i completely agree with you i'm interested on the values and yeah. and priority side of things like some people find it a bit difficult to actually understand like what their own values yeah. are yeah um do that in the workshop too oh you do okay <laughs> but i need to go to some of your workshops maybe i need to do it <laughs> yeah but like is it like for you for your experience was that something that came very natural to you that like if you kind of sat down you're like actually do you know what i'm you know I know myself well enough and connect with myself well enough that I, I basically know what I value. I know what my priorities in life are. Or was it something that you actually had to kind of work through to figure out? Mm, I knew that they were important, but I have been a people pleaser for most of my life. And so when, and it's really interesting, you'll find that most people who go into like social work or nursing or any of those professions, we're, we're generally people pleasers. We like to please others. We like to do things for others at the 
consequence of we don't look at our own needs. We don't look at what matters to us. And so it's really, for me, been the last kind of three to four years of trying to unlearn that people-pleaser mentality and be a, like reflect on, well, what does matter to me? What are my values? What is a priority? And that has really shifted a lot of friendships and relationships and things because I show up differently to how I used to. Mm, likewise. Well, people please our good girl Amy isn't <laughs> doesn't show up as much. How did you did you have any situations where you know maybe you had some friends or people who were like, hey, where's the where's that Amy gone? She was. No, <laughs> I, I have to. I don't. I don't think so. Not that. Um, I. It's more been like people who've known me almost my whole life have said you you've changed a lot in the last few years, and I guess I'm thankful that. They're still around. But <laughs> yeah. And was that, is that, how old is your kid, Ezra? He's three next month. Oh, okay. Yeah. So was it, yeah. it, was that kind of what? Yeah, that was a big thing. I think going through pregnancy, childbirth and all of those things um, was a very empowering experience for me. I really, um, that's just my overthinking research brain. I did so much research into preparing for birth and I, Found this amazing course, if there's anyone who's pregnant, Core and Floor Restore. She's incredible. She's on Instagram and stuff. Um, learning about the birth system and, like, the healthcare system for women. And I think that whole system would be very different if it was men giving birth. Just <laughs> going to put it out there. It would be much better. Um, and just learning about, my, like the female body and about birth and childbirth and all of that, like back to it's f- from a physiological thing of like this is what our bodies were designed to do. And I totally get, um, you know, sometimes it doesn't work that way and, I've you know, people who go through miscarriages um, who have complications and things, it's so great that we live somewhere where there's access to healthcare and things to support in those spaces. Um, and at the same time, we've over-medicalised like a natural thing. Mm. And and so I had a home birth um, and through the hospital system, like I had midwives there and everything. It wasn't a free birth. <laughs> and it was amazing though. And I think going through that, uh, it just, I guess, awoken something in me. Like if I can go through that... <laughs> Like, I I guess I'm a bit more like no bullshit, like, no, I'm who I am. Like, I don't know, my needs matter and and I want my son to know that oh, mum matters. Like, you know, I go, for instance, I go to the gym or go for a run or a swim or anything almost every day. Um, and, yeah, I prioritise my well-being. I prioritise my self-care because I want to model that to particularly if I have another kid and I have a daughter or something like I don't want her to grow up thinking oh I matter but once I become a mum I don't matter yeah because I think that's the the dominant discourse in society is that mothers are meant to be selfless mothers are meant to do everything for their kids and their needs don't matter and things like that and that's why you have like the rates of um, 
depression and anxiety, like postpartum and um, burnt out, exhausted mothers because we've been told since we were tiny little humans that's what it means to be a good mum. I don't know how we got onto that, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) I guess that that. But I yeah, I guess going back to that, becoming a mum has really empowered me to really own my needs and own my well being. Yeah. Um. Personally, I think professionally, I was always quite good at that. Um. I was quite lucky in my first placement on social work as a social worker. I was working in an organisation with refugees and people seeking asylum and day three I bawled my eyes out in my um, supervisor's office because I was so overwhelmed just hearing the stories that people, the experiences they'd had and the way they were being treated here in Australia uh, and feeling really helpless and... He was very kind to me and he gave me a book called uh, Help for the Helpers and it was all about compassion fatigue and um, vicarious trauma, which is really prevalent in those industries. So I was lucky from my first placement to be aware of that and the risk of that being working in those spaces because a lot of people go years of working and then getting burnout and having the impact of vicarious trauma and compassion fatigue before they realise it's even a thing. Um, so I think professionally I've been quite aware of that stuff, but personally I've just been people pleaser, go over and above and yeah, yeah. never take care of myself. Yeah, well, that's, um, it seems like a really good thing um, to teach kids, right? Like that, yeah. that And that balance of like... You know, you can you can be compassionate and empathetic and like help others. Yeah. You know, and you can look after yourself. Yeah. It, it Not at ha- the expense of your own yeah, well-being. It doesn't have to be yeah. it doesn't have to be either or. Yeah. Um so yeah, I think that's uh and obviously like <laughs> the interesting one is like um like my dad is like f- fantastic at helping with it. He would put everybody else in front of himself, like yeah. especially like um us kids and like my mum and stuff. And then every now and again you kind of kind of feel like saying, Hey, you know, maybe you should uh, yeah. do something for yourself sometime yeah. <laughs> and, and do that as well. But, yeah, I'm I'm interested in um, probably just a couple more questions and we finish off. But um, one thing that, you know, we talked about a little bit before was, like, if somebody's in a job that, you know, they're not loving, yeah. right? They're just – and we've, all, we've probably all been – I, I know I certainly had jobs like that that I just wasn't vibing off at all. And mm. um, – but, like, either they're not in a position to just, like, up and leave. Um, they know that they're going to have to do this job for a little while longer. Yeah. Um, what can that person do to, you know, maybe get a bit more satisfaction or find that job a bit more a bit more yeah. bearable? Because I know you have some thoughts on, on that. Yeah. I think it. I, a caveat here is um, it depends on if you're in a toxic environment like if there's workplace harassment or bullying or things like that that's different to you're just not finding the work very enjoyable so or purpose filling so obviously when you're a social worker or the types of work that I do 
it's pretty obvious. Like there's a lot of purpose behind it. So it's easy to find that. But when I used to work in retail and hospitality and and I think jobs where we need people, we need people to do be cleaners, we need people to do the jobs that traditionally by societal standards we seem as mundane or not very purpose-driven. And I was always, when I worked in retail, selling clothes is like, oh, whatever. But I used to see it as an opportunity to connect with people and to show them kindness and respect. And I actually, in sometimes you'd have these really amazing conversations and you get to make someone's day a little bit brighter. So, yes, I was just working in retail, but I also had the opportunity to connect with so many different people every day um, in that job. And so that's where I found purpose and that's where I found it showing up to work a little bit more purpose-filling, fulfilling and enjoyable being able to do that. And in retail, some places, like there's a big push on like KPIs and selling the most and things and I never I never liked that. But I used to hit always hit my targets and sometimes be like I'd get like the best for the month or whatever. And people used to be like, oh, how did you do it? I'm like, I'm just nice to people. <laughs> just kind. I don't try and sell. I actually genuinely just try to connect with them as human beings. And you know when you walk into a, a shop when someone's trying to sell stuff and it turns you off so much. Like you're like, just go away. It, it's so true. <laughs> you made me think of it. This is very random, but you made me think of a book that was written about a guy who, who ran this, uh, runs this very successful coffee shop yeah. uh, in Dublin. And he wrote a book about how to run a good coffee shop, right? And yeah. basically on the first page, he's like, there's really only two things you need to do. <laughs> Make good coffee and be nice to people. Yeah. <laughs> and he was like, if you do that, People will come back, yeah. <laughs> right? And it's so true. And I think about, like, you know, the coffee shop that I go to. Like, I go there because, like, sure, the coffee's good, but, like, it's because people are nice. And, like, the they'll have a chat with me. Yeah. I can sit down. They'll say what's going on. And, like, I've been to other coffee shops where it's, like, you know, can't get a word out of them and it's a bit cold. And you're like, probably not going to go back there. Yeah. It's not really – it doesn't feel that good. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then the other, the other question I'm interested to ask you is – for people who are um, doing something that they don't love, but they have ambitions for changing their careers or going into something else down the line, right? Because they, because yeah. and and that's kind of one of the reasons I started this podcast because I found a lot of people in their twenties and their thirties had gone down this certain path. Mm. And like I don't think this is really what I want to do for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, and this is a tough question, but like, do you have any like thoughts on like how those people can? you know, explore other areas, like find something it is that, that they get purpose from. Mm. Um, and I guess, do you think having purpose is important? Because I know a lot of times we kind of like link to this as like we should find purpose and meaning in our jobs. But like how important is that, do you think? I don't necessarily think in your jobs and going back to the start of the conversation, our job is not the be all and end all of who we are. I definitely, for me, I think purpose, having a purpose-driven life is valuable and for me personally is um, essential. 
And I used to say everyone needs that. I would say now um, maybe not everyone needs that. I think that you can only say that for yourself, whether it's important for you to feel purpose-driven or have a purpose-filled life or things. So, But I do think we need to step away from that purpose coming from our day job. So... um, I think it can be part of it. And for me, it it is. Like I do feel kindred, um, the work I've done in the past is very purpose-filling, purpose-driven. Um, but I've stepped away from it being all, my whole purpose is what I do for a day job. It's actually part of how I show up in the world and um, part of the things that the values I have and the, the legacy I want to leave, um, and it happens to be that my day job is part of that. But it may not always be part of that, but that won't take away from that purpose. Yeah. And when you talk about, like, those values or, you know, a legacy that you might want to leave, like, what, what does that look like? Um, I guess that people are more aware of themselves are aware of others and ha- and show show compassion but know how to do it in a really tangible way so we can make a more equitable like it sounds really airy fairy but i genuinely want more equitable more compassionate more empathetic kind society for everyone uh, but to get there it's not about you know, good vibes only. It's actually, <laughs> it's actually about no recognizing and put, like. So, as a non-indigenous person, the last five years, uh, doing a lot of unlearning around or learning around the truth telling and learning about the history of colon and the impact of colonization. Like, it's actually a lot of discomfort in creating um, a society that looks like that because we've got to recognize the negative stuff um, and acknowledge and take responsibility before we can move forward. So it's not putting things under the rug. It's actually like facing them front on and looking at why things are the way they are now in society um, before we can move forward. Mm. That feels like a pretty amazing purpose. (laughs) I mean, not that that you can have a bad purpose, right? (laughs) Yeah. um, But, um, yeah, I think that's fantastic, yeah. Well, I think we should end it there. It's a good note to end it on. But um, thank you so much. Thank you. It was great. And, yeah, it's good. If anyone wants to connect with me, I'm on Kindred Consulting. Yes. Where's the best? Instagram? Probably Instagram. I'm not the greatest at socials, but I'm there. (laughs) Always happy to have a chat. (laughs) Okay, I'll chuck the the Instagram and the links and everything so people can go and find you there. And LinkedIn, I'm showing up more there now as well. So... Yeah, that's kind of where all the business people are. Yeah, that's true. Okay. Okay, I'll put the links. If anybody wants to find uh, Amy and Kindred, um, you can go check out those links. Love that. You'll find her there. Thank you. Thank you so much.